Gracious Father, we again come to your servant Paul, his words in Galatia, Galatians. And again, Lord, we, we just thank you for this instruction, this instruction about what it means to truly will be your, one of your children to be saved. And, and Lord, texts like the one tonight can confuse us and we can kind of well, mentally skip over it, but help us understand it. It's clearly understandable and fits into the argument that Paul's making, Lord. We acknowledge that, but we need some illumination by your Spirit, and that's what we ask for tonight. In that process, may we also be challenged by your Spirit as to why we want certain things a certain way and how we think that by having things like lists and the like, it gives us control when actually it just enslaves us and is the exact opposite. Help us see that, Lord, tonight. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we are back in Galatians 4. If you remember last week, we talked about uh, what it means to be a, a child of God, a son or daughter, and the idea of adoption, and the idea of inheritance. We looked at that. Uh, we're picking it up tonight, and starting with verse 21, we will go through basically 5.1. We're going to go through 5.1 this week and next week, it kind of is a bridge between the two passages. And, and this passage, because it refers to a, uh, an Old Testament situation and does it in an allegorical way and takes the characters and kind of uses them in a different context than we're familiar with in the Old Testament, it's been uh, at times challenging for people to understand. They'll get, they'll read it, and they'll say, okay, I don't get this. If we slow down, and we will see how this fits in perfectly with the argument Paul's been making throughout Galatians, and it, it gives us further context for what his argument is against the Judaizers. So we're going we're gonna to pick up on verse 21. We're going to read through 26, but then we're going to go back and really pick it apart because this is one of those where you got to understand almost every word to understand what he's talking about. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Okay, I got to admit, even when I read that initially, um, yeah, you can go, okay, what was that? Then you read it about 500 times. And do a little study and you go, oh no, it's perfectly clear. 
Well, it's perfectly clear because you understand what he's saying, the words he's using. And it starts off with the very first verse, verse 21. We have to understand what the word law means. What does he mean by the law? Often we assume that the law just means the Mosaic law, that law that is given to Moses to be given to the uh, Israelites at Mount Sinai. And we think of that as a Mosaic law. That is one of the ways the law is used by Paul. We have that up there, the Mosaic law. There's a couple other ways. Well, there's actually more than a couple, but two primary ways and other ways. is One is the Pentateuch. He'll refer to the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, as the law, or he'll refer to all of Scripture as the law. Okay? And we have both in this verse. He says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, the Mosaic law, do you not listen to the law, Scripture law? Now, whether you want to say it's the Pentateuch or the whole Testament, I tend to believe here he's talking about the Pentateuch, but it doesn't matter whether he's talking Pentateuch or the Scripture. So he uses that same word that's translated in English, law, he uses it in two different ways in our opening verse of our passage tonight. If you don't know that, this isn't going to make any sense to you. You're going to say, well, what do you mean? Don't you live? How do you live? What? I don't understand. His argument is this. You want to be under the law, but don't you listen to Old Testament Scripture where the law comes from? Don't you know Old Testament Scripture? Don't you know what it says? You who wants to go and live under it? And he uses that as a foundation for what his argument is going to be. And he goes on in 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. Okay? But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. We need to know the background story, and we need to know it well. So to do that, we need to turn to Genesis 16 and look at what he's referring to. Genesis chapter 16. We know the first 11 books of Genesis, or first 11 chapters of Genesis, are basically how the world got into the predicament it did. How evil, how suffering entered the world, how through that, the world got into a situation where it had been totally apart from God and not living under God. And then in Genesis 12, 1, we have the great promise. And basically, the whole rest of the Bible, all the way to Revelation, is about the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12, where God comes to Abraham and makes him a promise that he's going to bless all the nations through Abraham's offspring. Now, Abraham at that time has no offspring. So we go on through, through 12 and 13, 14, and then in 15, he's talking about how his servant is going to inherit everything because he still has no children, and God promises him <clears throat> that he's going to have all these children, yet he still has no children, okay? And then in 16 is where the, the basis of the story that Paul's using is told. 16.1. Now, Sari, who's, who's basically going to get renamed Sarah. So, Sari, Sarah, Abram, or Abraham, he's going to get his name changed too. 
Abraham's wife are bor- had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah, or Sarah said to Abram, or Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now they know they have this promise, but she sees this as God preventing her from having children. Would have been a common understanding. Go in to my servant that it may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as his wife. So she can't have children, so she gets a surrogate, basically, and says, here. Now, we know this isn't going to go well, right? But she tries it. Um, when she saw it, she had conceived. When Sarah, Sarah, Sarah had saw that Hagar conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. So right away, it just you just can see this is going to be a problem, and it is right away. And Sarah to Abraham, may the wrong done to me by you. Isn't that as a guy, you're just going, wait a minute, whose idea was this again? Okay, we'll just skip that. Wrong done to me uh, on you. I, I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. In other words, she saw herself as superior because she became pregnant. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Okay? So this is Sarah's attempt to fix the problem that she acknowledges is from God, even though God has promised them children. She is going to fix the problem, and this is her attempt at fixing the problem. Now, she learns from this and doesn't try it again, okay? But as we go forward, we see a renewal of the promise in, in chapter 17. And then in 18, he, God renews that promise again in, in Sarah's earshot, because she's Sarah by this time. And she laughs because she still doesn't believe. God's promised. She's tried to do it on her own. She has failed. She's not stupid enough to try that again, but she still doesn't believe that God's going to bring it about. And then as we know, he does bring it about and all that. And Isaac is born, and he is the child of the covenant, child of the promise. So, that's our setting for these two women, okay? Just so we got a handle on who's who. Hagar has Ishmael, and Sarah has Isaac, okay? Uh, Sarah is never mentioned, and Ishmael is never mentioned in our text. But that's the, how they're related, okay? So he says this, Abraham 2 Two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. The child of the slave was born according to the flesh. She's born by flesh because that's human effort, right? It was Sarah's idea to take Hagar and say, here, be the wife of Abraham so we can have children. And that's just human. 
It's also sin. Flesh can mean many things, one of which is sin. And it was Sarah's sin to not trust God. It's always sin when we don't trust God, okay? So how this lines up is Hagar, well, I always do it this way. It's easier. Hagar is a slave, okay? The child, Ishmael, is born by flesh, by normal human uh, reproduction and is also a product of sin and she relates to the law. That's what Paul's going to say, that she's the law and that if you're under the law, you're a slave. Sarah, free, right? She's not a slave. When she gives birth, finally, it's not because of human, normal reproduction, it's because of the promise of God. God brings across a miracle. There's no way they can have children. Hagar somewhat is an example of that, that Sarah is barren, though she is 90 years old. Um, and so Isaac is born wholly and completely the promise, and Paul's equating Sarah with being free. Now, I acknowledge that Abraham, Isaac, they're all what ultimately brings about the law, okay? I mean, let's, but Paul is dealing, as he says, allegorically, which is slightly different how we'd see allegory, but basically it's taking an historic event, taking it out of its context, using it in a different context, and, and moving the players a little bit, okay? Using them... They're not symbolic. They're what's called type. It's a type of, so it's a combination of allegory and typology. Not that we need to get into that, but that's what he's doing. He's saying, I understand that, that this is what resulted in the law, but I'm using it a different way. So, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Well, the son of the free one was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Now, we got to acknowledge he never gives us two covenants. He only gives us one. It's like two covenants. He explains one and just never circles back to tell us about the other one. We just got to own that. One is from Mount Sinai. Okay. What happened to Mount Sinai? That's where the Mosaic law was given to Moses, right? Bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar, okay? Hagar was not in Mount Sinai. Okay, so just, we got to suspend this. We're using allegory. This is kind of a, a type, a representative kind of thing. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, just to make sure we're clear. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Okay. What he's saying is, <clears throat> Hagar giving birth was a human attempt to do that which only God can do, fulfill the promise that God has made. Okay? Human attempts to do what only God can do results in sin, results in bad outcomes. Okay? That's just the way it is. And so she... 
has Ishmael because of the unwillingness to trust and be faithful to the promise of God by Abraham, Sarah, and, well, Hagar didn't have a choice, I don't think, in this, but, okay? I mean, that's, that's our storyline here, and that's what he's going for. So, when he says present day Jerusalem, what is he talking about? Because he's saying Hagar is Mount Sinai in, Abraham, in uh, Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is slavery with her children. Well, it's seen a couple of different ways, but almost the generally agreed upon is it's not only Judaism on Paul's day, but specifically also the Judaizers. But it isn't just the Judaizers. It's all those that are under the Mosaic Law. All those that have rejected, rejected the promise of God through Jesus Christ. Okay? Again, the law, we said this last week, the law is not bad. The law has been fulfilled. The time of the law is over. To hold on to the law is sin. In fact, he's going to say next week, to hold on to the law is death and destruction. And that the new fulfillment of the law, Jesus Christ, is here. And the Jews and the Judaizers, though they're different, because the Judaizers, what, except Jesus Christ, just don't see him as sufficient, are the present Jerusalem who are enslaved to the law, which means being enslaved to sin. Okay? We, we, we're, we getting this? I mean, it's, I know it's, you got to kind of take your head and go like this a little based on the, the Old Testament story. But his point is the same as it's been throughout Galatians. Human attempt at salvation is going to fail. In fact, not only is it going to fail, it's an affront to God and it will result in your destruction. As he's going to say next week, if you keep the law, if you circumcise and try to keep the law, you have undone all that Christ has done for you. I can't imagine someone saying to me, Tom, you, you've been incredibly successful in undoing everything Christ did for you in his death and resurrection. Doesn't seem like that's a positive. And that's what he's saying, okay? So, that's his, he equates Sarah to that. Now, what is he doing, or is, uh, Hagar to that? What is he saying about Sarah? But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. The Jerusalem above is the eschatological um, New Jerusalem, okay? It's that Jerusalem that's promised, that, that new city of God, the new people of God, okay? And in classic Paul fashion, it's now, but not fully yet. Jesus Christ came, and he initiated the new people of God. In fact, he is the new Israel. He initiates the new people of God. The kingdom of God has, has come, but it's not fully yet, and it won't be fully yet until what? Christ's return, 
So this Jerusalem from above is the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that's promised, this new city, this fulfillment of, of the promise. It's populated with the new people of God who are the followers of Jesus Christ. And that new Jerusalem, those people are free. And initially, we can say they're free from the law, but they're free from so much more. It, being free from the law is almost meaningless. Who cares? But if I'm free from the law, I'm free from what? Sin. Christ gives me an opportunity to be free from sin. Christ gives me an opportunity through the work of the Holy Spirit to no longer be enslaved to sin and the law. A new day is here. That's what he's talking about. Now, he doesn't mention her, but Sarah is his example of that because it's through her that the child of promise was born. Okay? So, one is a work of God. One is a work of man. Ishmael is a work of man. Isaac is a work of God. This is what brings about eternal results in a positive way, and this does not. So it's the same thing. So he's saying to, now what we don't know is, why is he using this example? It could be the Judaizers brought it up, or maybe he just sees it as a, a good example to speak out of the Old Testament Scripture, which is, you remember, all they have at this time. And it's an example of how you can try to achieve something which is good by your own effort. Sarah through Hagar. And how that can so backfire so quickly. I mean, Sarah, she conceives, and Sarah immediately, it's bad. So we, we see this these two representing, what we don't get is the other covenant. And the other covenant, you could easily say, is the new covenant. But we see the new covenant as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, not the Mosaic covenant. And it is a fulfillment of the law. But this, this covenant that God made with Abraham that started in 12.1, Jesus is the fulfillment of that and when he returns is the ultimate fulfillment of that okay so we don't want to compare that so we're really comparing jesus way of dealing with sin and the law's way of dealing with sin okay questions i just don't want to i know it this is understandable you just gotta go over it slow enough and enough times till you just get it in your head. Again, this isn't new based on his argument. This is a continuation of what he's been arguing for. Then 27. For it is written, and it's written in Isaiah 54, verse 1. We'll look at it in a minute. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. In other words, you can't have children. You who cannot have children, rejoice. For the children of the desolate one will be more. In other words, 
than those who have a husband. In other words, though you who cannot have children, you will have more children than those that can have children. What? What does that mean? Well, in Isaiah itself, we see it in this, this uh, messianic text, and basically it's seen by the Israelites as uh, saying that, they're, that Jerusalem is going to be repopulated. Jerusalem's been decimated. Remember, they're in exile. He's speaking to them that they're going to come back. But if we look at that, if you turn with me to Isaiah, uh, really starting in chapter 53 and then 54, we see we're smack dab in the middle of this messianic passage. In... Um, Chapter 53, starting verse 3, we see, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he, was, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. Yet he was pierced for our transgressions, he's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Okay. How many times have we heard that quoted, especially around Holy Week? This is speaking of the Messiah, speaking of the Christ, speaking of Jesus. Well, follow that on because that's the rest of that, pa- that chapter speaks of that. And then we come to our quote in 54. And it says in 54.1, Sing, O barren one who did not bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Uh, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations." And will people and people the desolate cities fear not for you will not be ashamed, be not confounded, you will not be disgraced for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your. Okay, so he's talking about the greatness of what this is going to be. Okay, so what he's speaking of, he's speaking of how this new Jerusalem above the heavenly Jerusalem is going to be greater than the Jerusalem of the day. you got to remember, there's just a few Christians at this point. The, the church in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem, is the largest Christian church of its day at this time of this writing. And he's, he quotes Isaiah saying, no, the people of God, the new Jerusalem, is going to be greater. In fact, you've got to make your tent bigger, get ready, because all these people are going to come in, and which is obviously proved to be very powerfully true. That, that the followers of Christ just overwhelmed the Jews very quickly to the point today, I mean, it's statistically, it's, there's no comparison. So that's what he's quoting. And then in 28, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Okay, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Okay, so 
Isaac is talked about taunting. Ishmael is talked about taunting Isaac. And he say, so his, his equation is, you Christians, you're small in number. You're being persecuted by the Jews. Okay? But there's a day coming when it's going to be significantly different. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the child of the slave woman shall not inherit with the child of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. What happens is Sarah wants Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. He doesn't want to. God says, do what she says. Then God provides for them both. But she needs to be cast out because she is not part of the promise. You got to remember, Abraham circumcises Ishmael, tries to bring him in the covenant, but no matter what happens, he is not going to be a child of the promise. He is not how God chose to work. Okay? So he's cast them out. It's true for the, the Jew and the Judaizer. If they're not willing to wholly and completely come to Christ, then they're not going to be part of the, the Jerusalem above. They're not going to be part of this work of God, this fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament uh, covenants and promises as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You cannot just say, I'm a Jew and I'm not going to accept Jesus Christ. Though that's what they tried. And the Judaizers tried to live in both worlds. Try to cover both bases. And what Paul's going to say is he's going to say, you, you not in both worlds, you've negated one world by trying to be in the other. And that's just really powerful. I mean, people all the time try to, you know, add a little extra, just try to, you know, I, I hear it all the time. I, there isn't a week go by it doesn't say, okay, what? Wh- what do I need to do to be saved? Believe that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says he is, wholly and completely. Yeah, I know, but I mean, I mean, what else? That's all you got to do. No, really, there's got to be something else. No, if you truly believe that, your life will be transformed, but you don't have to do anything. You just have to believe that. Yet that's one of the hardest things to do. We often, you know, it's a cliche. You've heard it many times up here from all. The the temptation is what? Okay, great, but give me five things I can do, you know, to know I'm saved. Okay, the minute you get those five things, you're going to fail. One thing, you're going to fail. We are incapable of consistently doing one thing, let alone you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, whatever. Yet we want that. Why do we want it? Because that gives us a sense of what? Control and we think certainty. If I have that list of things, then I know. Then I have a sense of control. Then I'm in charge and then I can. No, no. In two weeks from tonight, here, here he's, he's, he's saying, don't 
don't want the law, don't stick to the law. Law ends in death, it ends in sin. And then two weeks from tonight, he's going to give a list. And you're going to go, wait a minute. You just said whatever you do, don't focus on a list. And Paul's going to give us a list two weeks from tonight. Ah, but there's just this set of words right before that list that is the key to what it means to be a follower of Christ. It is the difference between the way Jews and almost everybody, all religions, look at things and how Christianity does. We have to truly be willing to die to self. And that dying to self, a major part of that is dying to that desire for control, that desire for the list, the desire for just tell me what I need to do. If you read the Mount Sinai account in Exodus, Abraham, or Abraham, Moses, before he goes up, God talks to him and he tells the the Israelites that that this is what God wants and I'm going to go up and they go, oh, we'll do it all. He goes up, first time, comes back down. Yeah, we'll do it all. Goes up again. I mean, what's he gone? A few days at most, and boom, what? They're just not, they're undoing all they said they'd do. And they're the ones that just experienced the exodus. We have to accept our inability, our total, complete inability to save ourselves. We can't. What the saddest part, really, quite frankly, is the Christian, and I use this in a term the way people self-identify, the Christian that acknowledges Jesus Christ as their Savior, yet they spend their whole time in Christianity trying to find a way to will themselves to live a life that reflects how a Christian should live. They've missed the whole point. You don't strive to be a Christian. You don't do that. It doesn't work. It's the same thing as having a little bit of Christ and living under the law. It's the same thing. And I don't want to get ahead of myself because in two weeks, I think it's just a phenomenally powerful passage, but he's going to talk about the difference. We don't just, okay, I got Christ, but really, I got to just work really hard at being a good person. No. Faith in itself is transforming. That's what it does. The problem is faith. The problem isn't that somebody didn't try hard enough. The problem is somebody doesn't truly believe. If you don't experience transformation, it's not because you're not trying. It is that you don't believe truly that Christ has the ability through the Holy Spirit to transform us. But again, that's in two weeks. And the, the, the transition verse is 5.1. For freedom... For freedom, the purpose is for freedom, 
Christ has set us free. He set us free for us to be free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For those that, that the argument goes, okay, fine, you're justified in Christ, but to stay in Christ, you have to keep the law, because that was one of the arguments of the Judaizers. He's going, no, he came to set us free. That was his whole goal. His goal was our freedom. Freedom from sin. So don't like re-enslave yourself, okay? Don't, as he's going to say in the next couple of verses, don't undo what Jesus did. Don't do it. Take the freedom that he's given you, and that freedom is a key to salvation. Hold on to that. Don't go running back. I mean, think of this is. We believe that uh, against the, some of the first Gentiles to come to faith are what we call these God-fearers. God-fearers are people attracted to Judaism, and they, they basically are observant to the extent, but they don't get circumcised. They were circumcised, they'd be a proselyte, fully a Jew, Gentile turning to Judaism. So they're God-fearers. So they're attracted to Judaism, but they don't get circumcised. Okay? Then they come to Christ, and then the Judaizers come and say, no, you have to keep the law, and keeping the law is being circumcised. So what happens to the, the god fair? They just go right back to where they were before, on the outside looking in, keeping, worshiping with everything, but yet they're not fully in because they don't get, he's, you know, it's like, what are you doing? You do this, all you're going to do is go right back to where you were before you even heard about Christ. You've just done, undone all that was done. Why would you do that? And yet you know, I hear people all the time. They say, yeah, you know, what does it mean to be a saint? Well, it means you don't do this, or you do this, or you don't do this, or this, 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 this. Really? Have you read Galatians? We want tangible evidence that you're, how do I know you're in Christ? Well, I know because when I see these things, that tells me you are right, exactly. That's why we don't judge anybody. Because we don't have the ability to see in somebody's heart. We don't have the ability to tell that anything about anybody because we don't have that ability. That's why only God judges. Because he's the only, only one that can see past the stuff, the tangible stuff that we look for and see someone's heart and understands where they really are through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, as it has been throughout the Bible, as it was in Genesis 12, as it was in Genesis two and three. It's about a relationship with God. That's what it's always been about. What did God want from Adam and Eve? He wanted a relationship. He wanted to be able to walk amongst them. What does he want from, from Abraham? He wants a relationship. 
What does he want from the Israelites of Mount Sinai? He wants a relationship. The law is put in place so he can have a relationship. The problem all along is they take the law and didn't want God. And if our focus is only on how do I get saved, give me my list so I can get saved, we don't want God, we just want the outcome. And that hasn't worked for thousands and thousands of years, and it still doesn't work today. If you don't want to know God through His Son, Jesus Christ, then salvation is going to be elusive. But if you want to know God, and you understand Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, then salvation is the outcome of that desire of that seeking. It's not the object of, it's just the outcome of the pursuit of God through Jesus Christ. That's the way it's always meant to be. Whether we're in the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, whether we're in Abraham under under the law, wherever it is, that's what it's always meant to be. But we've always turned the law into a master that we couldn't fulfill you know, a master that just constantly showed us our failure over and over and over again. And what Christ is, is the answer. Because we can't and don't do anything. We just believe. All right. Let's grab a Bible and go in our discussion groups.